Okay, and now for something completely different. Uh, but first I want to thank uh, Andrew Blick and Alex Mortimer for all the work that they've done to organize this and Carolyn Holbrook and David Lowe for actually getting this conversation started. And I should note, Joanna, that the guy who looked at my passport when I told him I was going to an academic conference couldn't care less. <laughs> so one never knows. This is different because we've been talking about policy issues that we have to, in essence, say, bring a historian in here. You need to get some history. Uh, in this case, we have to do the same thing, oddly enough, because we're talking about something that is historical in, in its content. The controversies over Confederate monuments in the United States are by now well known, even beyond American borders. I am not the only historian by far who has spoken on this issue uh, on more than one continent. But for the purpose, our purposes at this event, what matters is the relationship between historical issues and public policy. Why does it matter whom we choose to memorialize in public spaces? What has changed over the past decade or so to generate these kinds of controversies, both in the United States and with comparable issues in other countries? What conceptual issues underlie the policy questions that in many cases are all too obvious? And what is the role of historians in these debates? Uh, my original paper had answered all those questions, believe it or not, but I've cut it. So you won't hear answers to all those questions. So first, let me map the terrain a little bit. As of a year ago, we had a plausible sense of numbers. For approximately a half century after Reconstruction, memorial associations, especially the Daughters of the Confederacy, erected more than a thousand Confederate monuments across the South, most notably in front of county courthouses. The most frequently cited figure as of the summer of 2017 from the Southern Poverty Law Center counted more than 1,500 monuments in 31 states as far north as the state of Washington, which is pretty much as far north as one can go, although Maine probably is a little further. This does not include battlefields, markers, plaques, or cemeteries, or even streets, which are countless. But there's actually more. North Carolina is the only state with a comp comprehensive inventory, and it turns out to have 300 Civil War monuments alone out of a total of 1,000 monuments statewide. But it's not only monuments. And the broader context that matters is important to understanding even just the monuments. As of the summer of 2017, 52 schools were named after Robert E. Lee, the commanding general of the Confederate Army, including in San Diego, California, Long Beach, California. Uh, this number is also contested. Washington Post says 78. We, we should be able to give it a count. 11 are named after, were named after Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederacy. Four after Confederate General Stonewall Jackson, uh, who is notable for having declared that slavery was ordained by God. Imagine 
that seven schools were named after Nathan Bedford Forrest, not only a Confederate general, but the first Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, here actually is a college building that I actually think has been renamed. Overall, 109 schools a year ago were named for Confederate, prominent, Confederate, prominent Confederates. 27 of these schools were majority black. A substantial portion of the schools were named in the mid to late 50s, which is not a coincidence, which I'll talk about. And I should note that many of these chain names have been changed over the past year. So these numbers are no longer correct. More than 150 monuments have been removed in the past two years. One estimate is, though, that there are still 1,700 left. So these numbers are all, I think, kind of questionable, but they're big, is the, is the point. Seven states have responded to this controversy, seven southern states, by banning removal, except with some kind of very complicated process. Uh, clearly here, we've barely scratched the surface, though that scratch has generated considerable bloodshed and cultural conflict. Moreover, some of what exists is much harder to deal with than what has been taken down. Uh, things, uh, examples that are no less egregious, but one might describe as more fixed or more difficult to change. Con the Vice President of the Confederacy, Alexander Stevens, Alexander Stevens, has a whole county in Georgia named after him, and one in Texas, not to mention a statue in the United States Capitol. And of course, he's not the only individual whose act of treason in defense of the right of some Americans to own, buy, and sell other Americans merits him a place of honor in the nation's capital. And perhaps the most fixed of all is Stone Mountain. How many of you have ever been to Stone Mountain? Just curious. Uh, this is actually kind of underestimates uh, it's basically a gigantic block of granite. It's the side of, this is the side of a mountain, in essence. This is not, I mean, this is carved into the side of a, of a mountain. Now, no, and I'll get to that again later. Now, none of this is news. For more than a century, uh, however, it occasioned very little controversy, except among African Americans whose objections were ignored. Over the last two years, the United States, or at least some portions of it, although there have been distractions lately, have finally started to discuss why it matters what a community chooses to memorialize. And this brings us to the more direct public policy issue. We can begin by thinking about not just the cultural functions of a memorial, but also the policy purposes. What is being memorialized and why? In this case, the world of the Plantation South and the political and military actions that were undertaken to maintain that world is are what was being memorialized for a particular policy purpose. So in other words, the policy issue is not only what do we do with these, we can't understand what to do with these until we understand the policy issue that was on the table in the first place. And that context helps us to understand why it mattered what white Southerners who defend these, why white Southerners who defend these memorials refer to this as heritage? A very important concept because heritage and history are very different, and I'll get to that a little bit as well. But for any memorial, there are two contexts. 
the context of what happened, which is the more straightforward context, and the context of when it is being remembered and memorialized, and hence why. So in other words, this, man, this is about the Civil War, but it's also about the periods in which these, went, these, these memorials were created. So part of the what is straightforward. What's being memorialized, is the, as I mentioned, is the plantation regime, the cultural and social world of the Old South before the Civil War. There are arguments over whether this, again, I'm going to use the word heritage, deserves the honor of public memorial, whether it is something that merits pride, but it is at least not difficult to establish the centrality of slavery to that regime and proceed from there. Uh, a little more difficult than asking whether we should be memorializing what is defined as the heritage of a slave regime is wartime hero heroism. And that takes us back, by the way, to the courthouses. Remember the statues in front of those courthouses. Those are of more anonymous Confederate soldiers. These are statues like the one near the University of Louisville with the inscription simply, to our Confederate dead, erected in 1895. When a proposal to remove that statue finally gained traction, the sons of the Confederate veterans and a Republican candidate for Congress who was a local real estate agent sued maintaining that removing the monument would be an insult to soldiers who fought and died. Which raises the question, which raises the question, quite frankly, about war memorials all over the world. Does it matter, as a policy issue, when thinking about war memorials, what soldiers fought and died for? One can be a hero in battle. One can be brave in battle even if one is fighting for the most despicable cause on the face of the earth. If one rushes, in, rushes, rushes into enemy fire and saves five of, of your comrades, that's a brave thing to do. Do we, do we choose as a community to honor that bravery, to honor that heroism, regardless of what the cause was for? Are heroism and sacrifice detachable from context in, the context, in our context of public policy? From purpose. This is a policy question with broad implications. It can be applied to all sorts of military situations. A mundane policy question also emerges when we remember that public monuments and spaces generally require maintenance. About as mundane as you can get. If the bulk of the monuments were built with private funding, which they were generally from the sons of the Confederate veterans, daughters of the Confederacy, United Daughters of the Confederacy, uh, in many cases, the taxpayers continue to foot the bill. Stonewall Jackson Shrine is a National Park Service site in Virginia. Its website doesn't even mention that Jackson owned slaves. The United States Army administers 10 major installations named after Confederate military leaders. The Army also has jurisdiction over Arlington National Cemetery, which contains a section for Confederate graves and a monument to Confederate dead. The Veterans Administration provides grants that fund state veterans cemeteries. Confederate graves in, in VA cemeteries can have a special headstone that includes the Confederate Cross of Honor and can display the Confederate flag at certain times. The Veterans Administration website also identifies 34 monuments and memorials in national cemeteries that explicitly honor Confederate soldiers 
or officials. It's not only the military. I've shown you statues in the Capitol. Uh, there are also National Park Service units uh, relating to Civil War history which commemorate, which commemorate Confederate soldiers. So the mere existence of these memorials has straightforward policy implications in terms of budget allocations and official recognition of a certain kind of virtue and heritage. But second is the context within which something is being remembered. The imperative of remembering that most of this memorialization itself had policy purposes. That which is memorialized and that which is left to popular memory are not accidental. Choices are made. Why? How do we understand the meaning and implications of those cho choices? Once built, problem is memorials then instead of becoming choices about what to commemorate historically once built the memorials become something called heritage and heritage is timeless the only context of heritage is place not 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 history and heritage is soft and fuzzy uh, and you can get into some serious conflicts with people in our own discipline when you start messing with heritage. But heritage and history are not the same thing. Heritage is something that is there to make people feel good. History, as someone earlier uh, observed, is here to make people feel uncomfortable in many ways. That's why we teach history, is to make people question who they are. And memorials have a context of time and place. To understand the policy basis of their very existence, we have to look at both. Now very quickly, big wave of Confederate monuments is not after the war, that's when you get those courthouse monuments, but most of them are a generation later, during which, during the period when white Southerners were setting up structures of white supremacy that would define Southern politics, culture, and social and economic relations for more than a half century, what's known as the era of Jim Crow. Unlike the low-key monuments put up in the years soon after the war, these were placed in conspicuous public places. So not only the courthouses, but traffic circles, parks, the heart of the university campus. The goal was to remind everybody, white and black, of the nature and identity of the American South. In other words, an explicit public policy purpose, a, a statement, this is what we fought for. This is who we are a community that depends on white supremacy as the basis for social order and economic prosperity. Who we are. Identity, politics, indeed. The next stage of memorialization was even more blatant from a policy perspective. The Confederate battle flag was pretty much a collector's item, something in the attic until 1948, when it was brought out in response to President Truman's executive order to integrate the military, and then as a symbol of what was known as the Dixiecrat Rebellion in the 1948 election. South Carolina did not raise that Confederate battle, fla battle flag in front of its state house that has been so famously taken down uh, until 1961. The schools named for Confederate heroes were either constructed or renamed as part of what was called massive resistance to the 1954 Supreme Court or edict to desegregate schools. I have only a few minutes. So, what is to be done? First of all, we have to have criteria. Good policy requires decisions that have a logic that generates consistency, which means we have to study the history. We have to consider, for example, and only again within knowledge of the history, what's the difference between uh, a the significance of somebody over the course of a career as opposed to the significance of something that they did that was deplorable 
On this and other aspects, we need to bring in historians not to tell people what to do, but to provide accurate information about origins, history, biography. For example, Robert E. Lee. Robert E. Lee is being commemorated as a defender of the Confederacy, as the defender, in essence, of the creation of a state to defend slavery. Tough to make an excuse for this. But Robert E. Lee also completely turned around a small college in Virginia called Washington and Lee College. So perhaps it's appropriate for a statue of Lee to exist at Washington and Lee College where he actually did something admirable, perhaps. Uh, but it is what helps us understand the deeply problematic argument of what's called the slippery slope, which is if we take down the statues of Lee, Jefferson Davis, et cetera, et cetera, people say, well, then what happens to Washington? What happens to Jefferson, who were also slaveholders? The difference, of course, is that George Washington did something else. Uh, he accomplished something else other than, other than committing treason. Even with the conflict over Woodrow Wilson at Princeton, uh, it's a legitimate argument that, that we should be taking Wilson's name off of things, but on the other hand, Wilson did contribute positively to building Princeton as a university. Uh, John C. Calhoun, who is memorialized at Yale with his name on a building until recently, not so much. Uh, buildings, streets, etc., are a different challenge from monuments. Uh, the argument there is that it's hard to rename things, local tradition, institutional loyalties, but quite frankly, buildings get renamed all the time. Uh, Columbia, very, Columbia University very famously took off uh, of a building that was called Livingston Hall. Uh, they changed it, I can't remember the name, but basically they took off the name of a signer of the Declaration of Independence and put on the name of the signer of a big check. And we do that all the time. So, what are the options? And I'll be quick. Uh, one option, we can do nothing, uh, which is the argument you can't change history, monuments have to stay because they're part of our history. There's also the argument that we should do nothing because they're public art, which is kind of an interest. I'd never heard that argument until I was on a panel with a bunch of art historians and architects who basically argued if you start taking down public art for political reasons, that is a kind of slippery slope, which is kind of an interesting argument because then some of the other artists on the panel just looked at them and said, it's bad art. Uh, you can leave them up with context, make them into teaching tools, which is what's happening um, in, actually at Princeton in a lot of ways. Uh, but the problem is that a monument is not history itself, when people say, well, you can't take these down because you're changing history. A monument commemorates an aspect of history representing a moment in the past when a public or private decision decided who would be honored in a community's public spaces, which I've talked about. So, that gets us to the spaces. The space matters. The person belongs in this space because he, and these are all he, embodies the values and ideals of our community. So, you can move them which would mean that you preserve the history that is embodied in the creation of these monuments, uh, but you have, in essence, removed them from their context, uh, the importance of space that I've mentioned. Or you can destroy them, which raises preservation issues. So, I do have a solution. Stone Mountain is in the middle of a big park. So one solution that a few of us have suggested, which has gotten no traction whatsoever, is to take all of the statues in the state of Georgia and move them to Stone Mountain. 
basically create a civil war park, civil war and reconstruction park, and you can probably do this in every state. It's actually somewhat similar, and I wasn't going to show these, but I will, to what they've done in Moscow. Uh, outside of Moscow, some of you have been, I see heads shaking outside of Moscow, where they, they've moved, uh, that's a, they've, they basically have moved all the Soviets, a bunch of Soviet statues to a park. Anyway, this is one solution. The important thing is that we have to engage it. We cannot erase these histories simply by taking down the reminders. As my friend historian Earl Lewis cogently reminds us, we cannot exercise the past without confronting it fully. And this is the work of historians. Thank you.